0: different uh, civilizations, tribes, customs, uh, all those kind of things coming together. You had the Israelites who had, as Kevin was just telling us, had been separated apart from the beginning to try and show what does it mean, how does it glorify God to have a people separated unto him. And then you had all these uh, Gentiles who were allowed to go their own ways. And so they just started adopting all kinds of things. I mean, when you have no rules and no boundaries, you know, you can you can imagine the imaginations of man's mind can do all kinds of things. And so there were a couple things that as they were investigating this, no we don't want to put everybody back under law and have them to understand the fullness of the Israelite law. But on the other hand, some of the things that the pagans did were particularly detestable. And so, you know, I don't know how they were able to come up with this so quickly, but they said those couple things. Idolatry. Well, we know that's detestable to God. um, That thou shalt have no other gods before me. So that was pretty clear and so they're supposed to take down all the idols and all the strongholds and all those kind of things. As they come in, let's stop worshiping anything else but worship the true God. Fornication, sexual uh, impropriety has always been something that's important to God. Uh, He has created us to be these sexual beings and to glorify him in procreation and in pleasure with the intended person um, that creates an intimate relationship. Uh, and and so that becomes very important. The intimacy that humans can have with another person can equal the intimacy um, that we can have with God in a certain respect. And so he designed the sexual function for us to get very, very close to someone as he would want to get very, very close to us. And then these last two, the eating meat from strangled animals and eating of blood, uh, those kind of came together. And so that was where some of the question was, well, when you strangle an animal, it doesn't let the blood out, and the blood is contained in it. And so both of these have to do with blood issues. In the eating of blood, a lot of these pagan cultures and a lot of these um, different rituals of worship would include that, and they thought that it could extend your life um, that it could do, that there was power in various things that um, uh, and so a lot of their religious superstitions would include this drinking of blood or taking these animals, strangulating them, and eating the whole thing, because they began to equate life and blood, and thought that they could sustain their own life or prolong their own life in those things. So they took these practices and they said, why are these ones particularly offensive? That's kind of what Dave's question was. So I looked a little bit. So um, regarding those things, when the animal was strangulated, blood remained in the animal, as well as some pagan practices of drinking animal blood, thought to increase one's own life uh, of the transfer of remaining life from the individual to the drinker, and you know, if you watch vampire movies or something, that's supposed to do that and to help them be immortal and, you know, whatever. Um, it was of great concern when Jews and Gentiles came together in a new faith. Blood was strictly forbidden according to Jewish law, as found in Leviticus seventeen ten through 12. And whos, And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood... I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement uh, for the soul. So they began to look at this, and they were kind of still under that idea of law and this new fellowship, and they said, because it pertained to those who came into the faith if there was any of this kind of practice going on so with that being a normal practice of pagans they wanted to say don't trip these things up and God may still hold true to this fact that he's going to you know kind of set his say set his face against those that do that so by interpretation the understanding of blood was only for atonement for the Jew. And the blood of Christ was the sufficient atonement for all people and should no longer be included in any ritual or action for the believing community. It was a separation always for the Jew and should now also be seen as a movement from former former pagan ways for the Gentile converts. So blood was always something for atonement, and there was no need to continue in any kind of blood thing because Christ's blood was sufficient. So I don't know if I made that clear or not. Now, you say, well, is that legalism? Do they come back under some kind of law and say some of these things? Well, um, before the law, in Genesis 9-4, God said this to Noah coming out when he expanded the diet from just uh, plants to animals as well. He said, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. That predates the law, and it was given as an ordinance to Noah when all life was given for sustenance of man. And so they're saying, since this really kind of predates law, it's not a legalistic thing. It's something that God had set up from the very beginning. So as you brought these two cultures together, they wanted to make sure, one, that you weren't tripping up one another or being offensive, overly offensive uh, to someone else. And then um, there was no need for it, and God had already said uh, that blood uh, should not be eaten. But when they went their own ways, they just kind of perverted all those practices. So I think it comes back to that. And so that's what they kind of found in all the practices and the things that could really trip people up. Um, let's, uh, let's just kind of hold fast to uh, some little borders. And so in reality, of everything that people could imagine... Now you only have four things that they're saying. Let's just avoid these four things, and it really just demonstrates grace one to another. Um, that made life kind of simple and easy, I think. So, all right. So, um, so we finished up, uh, I think, or you know, we kind of wrapped up last week, and that got us to a point after this council that um, part of scripture is now being uh, revealed and recorded. And so historically, within this book of Acts, things start to happen. And so um, we get our first writings, our first two books of Scripture come at this point. The book of James is traditionally thought of as the first book written. Um, And so uh, after this council, or within this uh, context... Um, When Peter withdrew from Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus and a strong adherent to the law, uh, which we see in in, uh, Paul's writing in Galatians 2.12, became a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, He admitted that the Gentiles need not be required to follow all aspects of the law solidified the council's position. So him making that statement, him being a legalist and coming out of the council um, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, grace is taking over, but he still had this whole uh, background. And so he writes his book um, that really becomes um, uh, if you, you know, it's just got some extra information, but we'll come down to uh, the paragraph it says, James concerned that the doctrine of salvation by faith could easily degenerate without a corresponding holiness of life. That's one of the focuses of his uh, writing, a personal piety. How do, we, how do we see the holy essence of God living out of us who are not holy, which is us in Christ, Christ in us? And so he uh, demonstrated an obedience response to God was a supplement to faith. Faith demonstrated in works, in James 2.18, was the equivalent manifestation of faith demonstrated by Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. Faith and works are supplemental principles, not contradictory. So when you believe and fully believe, something is going to come uh, to practice. And so that's what he's saying is something uh, inevitably will be seen as an outward manifestation of what you believe inside. And so that's what James kind of uh, wrote down and and included as one of the first books written. At the same time, or uh, some people think that maybe uh, just before the council even met, that Paul began to write this book uh, to the Galatians. So the first writing of Paul is most commonly attributed to the eve of the council, written to the churches of his first missionary journey. Reinforced by Peter's experience, the book follows a similar outline to Peter's address to the council and was probably written irrespective of any outcome. So he didn't know what was going to happen in the council, but he says, These are the things that are important. And I'm going to send it out, um, not knowing what's uh, really going to happen. But, you know, whatever this debate brings about or this council brings about, and fortunately the Holy Spirit really confirmed uh, what was important. So um, he has those things and starts to lay out this uh, book to the Galatians, and it's got a pretty detailed outline there of things uh, that they were dealing with. So, um, but if you look at the at the main points, and um, Galatians is certainly a book that uh, um, uh, deals with the fact of of uh, these Judaizers coming in to the Grace Church. So there should be no independent revelation. Um, he says that that what has been revealed is not you know, changing. Uh, there were some things in there. Uh, the failure of legalism, he points out. And then he says the effect of liberty. When you are free and you have uh, freedom as a new thing, uh, it really can kind of change some things. And so he deals with, um With that, the effect of now being free, and then he uh, concludes with some stuff. So his, uh, Paul was insistent in the letter that his gospel was complete in uh, Galatians two two that they should entertain no other even if an angel from heaven should declare something. Uh, man's problem was a right standing with God, incapable of establishing on his own on his own according to the law but another has provided a way to those who fully trust that provision uh, galatians 3:22 this right standing is not just an external working but a full impartation of life in the son of god and that's uh, galatians 2:20 so let's take a look at that and just see the kind of key uh, verse within there And so, as I said, Paul, no matter what was going to happen, um, Paul wanted to get to these early churches his thoughts and the things that that, uh, he wanted them to hold to. And so he penned this letter. And um, we see in Galatians 2, um, uh, we'll pick it up in um, uh, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of of Jesus Christ, or by the faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall shall, shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? Uh, Let it not be. Is that how that goes? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me? And so this was like in you know just a groundbreaking moment uh, that really correlated to everything that the council said, that both him and James and Peter all come to the same conclusion that there is a life uh, in Christ that changes everything, not justified by any kind of law, but that the power and the holiness of the resurrected Christ can be dwelling in the believers. So, those are the first two books that are written. Um, they're very supplemental cores to the Christian truth that the ethic of Christ produces fruit in the believer. James 1.18 And freedom from the curse of the law and the blessing of uh, Abraham in Christ Jesus is promised to all who receive the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3.13-14 uh, The Spirit allows believers to serve one another in love. And so, um those two books together, you know separately, you can maybe read one and and James can seem a little legalistic, but if you understand James moving from legalism to uh, just something being emanated out from Christ dwelling in in us is uh, very important to put those two books uh, together as you begin to um, uh, prepare your uh, theology or devotion or uh, love for Christ that can actually be lived out. Uh, from us uh, through these things. That really started Paul's um, work and ministry. And so the next part of Acts starts to deal with uh, everything that Paul began to do. So um, uh, from the council, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch. They spent some time preaching and teaching. Uh, They go back to that church there where they were first called Christians, Um, both of them being firmly established as leaders And then Paul says, hey, it'd be good if we go out and strengthen the churches that we established. So, of course, Barnabas asks that John Mark be included, the deserter, and Paul has a problem with that. And so they get a couple new counterparts, and the gospel starts spreading out in different areas. And we don't really get any kind of record of what um, uh, John Mark and Barnabas did uh, with their ministry, other than maybe just lasting... Christian communities uh, that were birthed out of there, and live down in Titusville now. The Coptic Christian church down there that may be a little bit more uh, orthodox in in their thinking and uh, less understanding of grace. So well, I don't know. I, I haven't been there. I don't know. But um, it's just a. The, but that is associated with the work of Barnabas and John Mark, actually. All right. So Paul and. Uh, Um, goes out and he teams up with Silas, uh, includes Timothy, um, and starts to move his little circle of people. And uh, so we get an idea who who Timothy is. He brings him under his wing and uh, starts moving through the area and um, evangelizing, proselytizing, using uh, uh, Timothy in ministry. And, of course, later writes him some letters because Timothy... Um, shrinks back a little bit and doesn't do uh, certain things. Uh, It's interesting that, you know, the law has been settled, the issues of those are, and then we get this thing that uh, Timothy decides to be circumcised anyway. And I really don't have a lot of deep insight into that, other than, again, um, grace can really allow us to do things that just keep us from being a stumbling block to somebody else. Um, and so as a believer, as a Christian, Timothy said, look, I'll be, I'll be circumcised so that you know, Jews don't have any problem with anything I say. Uh, and uh, they know my history. They know who I am. Um, but because I'm doing something uh, for God. So he kind of did that. And um, they start moving out. So now where is the gospel going to go? We get to this situation. And it's interesting that Kevin was just covering a lot of this stuff in, in his class. Um, and uh, what is God's will for where things are going to go through Paul. And he gets up to this area in, um, uh, uh, where he's just kind of hindered and can't move. He wants to kind of go west uh, from there, which would be moving the gospel over to the Orient. An entirely different people and out of the Roman Empire, um, but they're hindered. And they can't go in that direction. And he has this vision to come up to Macedonia. So it um, it keeps the Roman Empire and the Western culture as the predominant recipient of the Gospel uh, rather than the Orient. And that's where uh, we get Luke introducing himself in Acts 16.10 that he has joined their party. So again, Luke has written this account of the book of Acts but he researched historically just as he did for his um uh, gospel account uh for this person Theopolis. but now he becomes an eyewitness uh from this point forward in the things that he records and writes down so um the last uh what would that be 12 chapters uh, of the book of acts have Luke as actually uh, a contemporary part of the ministry team seeing things firsthand and uh, uh, recording them uh, to share. In Macedonia, they uh, reach Philippi, a city named after Alexander the Great's father. So again, you still have some of that uh, Greek influence in there. It's now a colony of Rome. Um, they politically had every right as Roman citizens, and, um, but Paul writes to them that there's an even greater citizenship and that's in heaven. And again, that kind of comes back to we just had elections here in America and half the country, well, I say half because it's kind of on the vote. Half the country's happy and half the country's sad and nobody knows, but if you really take the numbers of registered voters, it's a fourth of the company, a fourth of the country is okay and a fourth of the country is upset about something and there's half the country that doesn't really even care anymore. <laughs> They think that their vote doesn't matter, um, and it doesn't. So uh, my take on it uh, and on politics is vote, exercise your right, because we have that freedom, while you have that freedom. Uh, And Paul kind of establishes some of these things. But following God, no matter what, and endeavoring to do what God desires for us to do is more important than what a Democrat does or a Republican does or if another party comes out or anything else. Um, while we are free people in this country, we have the ability to glorify God. And, um, and I think Paul, under persecution, knew that same thing. And if it gets to persecution here in America, I think there's going to be a big separation and a big dis- distinction between people who identify as Christian and people who really are Christian. And our goal and purpose is to make sure that we're always on the side of living out our faith in accordance with godly principles always. So, I don't know, maybe that's a little sermonizing there. Instead of just talking about the New Testament. But uh, the fact that Paul kind of deals with it, I think, is is important. Um, As they start moving out uh, in this town, Philippi, They don't uh, have a synagogue, so there was not a big Jewish population. And as was Paul's practice, let's go to where people are gathering and we'll start there. So he didn't know. So he found a place uh, where people were and he finds this um, textile dealer named Lydia. Uh, She opens her home and, and uses it a base there's a couple different things that happen in there as we read through the Scripture, some kind of supernatural events and God demonstrating glory and, and uh, His prominence over all um, artificial means of, of worship and, and things that aren't there begins to expose, as we learn in the Christian life, uh, religious works of the flesh and superstitious things um, that can still come into people's practices. Uh, But God is bigger than all those things. And that's uh, what we start seeing as the the gospel is moving through and God is being revealed. They get to Thessalonica, um, and there was a Jewish synagogue, and Paul preaches there uh, for three weeks, three Sabbaths. Uh, He uses the Messianic scriptures. He proved the Messiah was not only a king, but had to die and rise again, Acts chapter uh, 17.3. And some Jews believed, but there was a greater response from the Gentiles who received the message as if it came from God. Um, And they turned the people from idols to the living God. Intense opposition rose, and they had to flee the city at night after such a brief stay. And uh, I always go back to, if you ever do anything, but uh, when we get to, well, it's right here, but uh, when you get to the book of Thessalonians to think, Paul was there for only three weeks. So it had to be the Holy Spirit working in their life that revealed so much more um, and gave them insight. And their eagerness and willing to learn, the Spirit enabling them, um, they got things so that when Paul wrote them a letter later uh, to reinforce some early truths, uh, these people were getting it. So um, the Spirit just really moved. In that area, Uh, people uh, dove in and uh, fully participated. Um, But when they get to Berea, uh, the next place, there these people um, um, not only received, but then they also searched the scriptures to prove out. And so it was probably a much more educated and learned place um, than Thessalonica. Thessalonica. But but they... uh, um, They also uh, thrived pretty good in that area and um, uh, uh, they were multiplying um, and then there were some people who drove Paul out of Thessalonica that he could only stay there for so long, made it up to Berea to stir up some trouble there. So there was this opposition uh, that was kind of following him um, to keep the status quo, uh, to keep things from happening. I think as uh, a uh, Don has pointed out before, to uh, be energized by Satan to do Satan's bidding and to undermine the things that God was doing. And so we have to kind of see those things going on as well, that as God was moving powerfully and quickly in certain areas, opposition rises up too because there's always an opportunity um, that Satan is using every opportunity to stop what God is doing. Um, so after that, uh, Paul, uh, gone, you know, for a short time in Thessalonia, he writes the book, so we'll uh, look at it there. Um, uh, Timothy catches up to Paul in Corinth um, as, as they're going through these areas, and he writes this letter back to the Thessalonians, and it's included uh, in here in the work because, um, uh, I guess that was a time frame, and because Paul just came from there and was chased out, he really wanted to uh, make sure that they got a couple things. He was a little concerned and then heard reports. and so. Uh, uh, but this is some of the depth there on the back of, uh, or on page 24, the top of page 24. It was obvious that Paul conveyed much more about the Christian faith in the three Sabbath time that he was there. And it was empowered by the Holy Spirit it was re- as it was received as truth from God, not from men. But being one of the first churches of Gentile-only background, or largely Gentile background, there were many thought processes common among Jewish believers that were not part of the pagan mindset. Among these, fornication and idleness. While the Jews had a strong background from youth and family, community, and law regarding the sexual functions, pagans were driven by pleasure and convenience with no authoritative voice on limits to license. Paul addresses these in section 4 of the outline with sex morality and social conduct. Furthermore, Paul evidently had spoken on the Lord's return, and he addresses their concerns about those who had recently died and to remain alert and active while waiting as a spiritual consciousness. So, you know, even though the Spirit was moving among them, they were able to evidence their faith, uh, in their labor of love and, and their love for one another and those things, uh, there were still some uh, practices, just like those offensive practices that were already causing problems in the early church as as cultures clash. He's just kind of reiterating some things um, that pagans really didn't get. And if you look at here and you think about it, um, family structure, community, community um, Voices that say there is, you know, an authoritative voice like God saying something about something. Uh, we miss all that if we don't let God lead in our life, and and societies crumble and fail. I think uh, all that license, all that liberty that the pagan cultures continued to influence around Rome is what caused their failure. Um, it's the things that cause failure in America. And while people don't want to, you know, be legalistic and have bounds, there is still an authority that oversees all these things that people fail to recognize. And when they fail to recognize God in his authority, um, you know, kind of chaos ensues. So, um, uh, so Paul just addressed some of those issues, made sure that they understood that uh, God speaks about certain uh, issues. And uh, and he wrote to them about them. Um, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, uh, many that were concerned that the day of the Lord is just at hand and that they had missed it, uh, Paul writes the second epistle to the Thessalonians to clear up any misunderstanding from his preaching, his letter, or what was introduced by others. And apparently the message to do your own business and work with your hands was continuing to be overlooked and had to be readdressed. So, uh, as these people thought that the imminent return of Christ was here, that they should just go sit. I remember, I guess uh, I was living and working in Chicago and um, uh, in the early '80s, and people were concerned. People are always concerned. Uh, the Cold War was big. Maybe some of you young people don't even know what that is. Um, nuclear missiles were a reality. Uh, there was war gaming being played out, and what would happen if someone launched something and all those kind of things. And I was a, at least a pagan, I, I bo- still believe I was a pagan um, and living as one, a good pagan. And so I did my own things. And so my thought was, uh, as all this turmoil is going on, if all of a sudden we hear that you know, bombs are launched, what do you do? How do you prepare? And my thought process, because I didn't know any better, was, you know, grab a couple beers and just go sit and watch because Chicago, being a major metropolitan city, would probably be a target. And you just sit there and you wait till a mushroom cloud comes. And it's all over. Uh, Idleness, you know. Why keep working or why keep doing? If the end of the world is coming, uh, you know, what's the point of any of this? Um, Well we have to kind of work through some of those things and realize that our goal and purpose is to glorify God in everything we do. And by doing something, we give him glory. Uh, The same thing kind of came up as a concern when coronavirus came out and people stop, right? That doesn't glorify God or show faith in anything to be petrified um, to, to just be numb and to be distant. And then you take all these things. I'm so grateful for this church, and I know believers who don't have that same opportunity to continue to meet through the midst of this. As all this stuff is going on, and you start thinking about um, isolation and separation and not building each other up and not using our spiritual gifts, and those were things that the Thessalonians were doing with one another. And so um, if you just get idle, if you start separating, if you get lax, he's saying that's not being part of the community. And one of the exercises or one of the big um, things about our faith is that as we continue to live in community with one another, knowing that God is in control of an uncertain future, we give him more glory than just sitting around wringing our hands doing nothing. So... I think it addresses some of those things. Uh, so there's a little brief outline in there if you want to do uh, some of your own study and and look at those things. Um, obviously, you know we can't study every aspect of every book, but uh, these are supposed to help you get a little bit of insight. Um, where if you if you uh, pick one of these up, you know maybe this will help uh, you do. But uh, we see this in um, the bottom paragraph there on page 24. These two short epistles uh, to the Thessalonians contain every major teaching of the New Testament and contained a well-rounded body of theological teaching. Paul and believers who received his epistles believed in one living God. Obviously vitally important. Um, and uh, the... Is the, uh, that nomenclature? Uh, the key down there is that the first Roman numeral is whether it's first or second Thessalonians, and then the the scripture. Um, that one living God was the Father, who has loved men and chosen them to enjoy His salvation. Uh, God chose you, and I, I like that. You know, Kevin talks about that sometimes, and and uh, a lot of people maybe have problems with election and different things, and. And uh, I like his example the best, where God looked down and didn't say, I'm taking the best apples. He looked down and said, the entire apple orchard is rotten. But I'm going to take some of those rotten apples and do something. And, uh, and so he chose you. That's important. Um, he has sent deliverance from wrath through Jesus Christ, uh, his son and has revealed this deliverance through the message of the gospel. This message has been confirmed and has been made real by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, who was killed by the Jews. He rose from the dead. He is now in heaven, but he will come again. To him is ascribed deity, for he is called Lord, God's Son, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers receiving the word of God, uh, turn uh, from idols, serve God, and wait for the return of, cons- of, um, of Christ. Uh, their normal growth is sanctification. In personal life, they are to be clean, industrious, prayerful, and cheerful. And so we get a good summary of what it looks like to glor- glorify God through our faith in practical outward living um, that people can see. And if we think about the whole concept that God wanted uh, Israel to follow some laws, to demonstrate his glory and see what it looked like to be set apart, um, we see the same things that can happen with a Christian who lives by faith, understands the glory and nature of Christ that is living within him, and lives that faith out in front of other people that they can actually see something about God through our lives. And First uh, and Second Thessalonians cover all those things. From uh, these two places, Paul heads over to Athens. And, and here, his ministry um, takes a little bit of a break and a difference. Uh, I loved, um, if you think about Acts and you look through the whole thing, Paul has two sermons, basically. His one is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He uses it everywhere. He has a lot of uh, effect. In Athens, he uses things a little bit differently. He should have gone back to sermon number one. He should have just stuck with that. Paul was waiting in Athens for the arrival of Timothy and Silas uh, from Macedonia. Continuing his ministry efforts, Paul encountered a set of pagan thinkers. These people were ready to hear anything and unready to believe it. Paul's hatred of idolatry clashed, clashed with these skeptical pagans, however. Uh, their curiosity got him an invitation to Mars Hill, a rocky elevation in Athens where people gathered for public conference. Um, we had an opportunity to see it's really just the side of a hill is what it was. And and people would just gather up there and kind of pontificate and and listen and share ideas. Um, goes back to the thought of idleness. People just sitting around and listening um, and things not happening. Pulling the records, huh? Huh? Pulling the records. So his address in Acts chapter 17, 22 through 31 uh, tried to confront these skeptics and their intellect. uh, But when he spoke of the resurrection from the dead, he was interrupted and cut short. There were few converts in Athens, and Paul was quite troubled by the difference, the indifference shown to him and the good news message he brought that makes note of coming to the Corinthians, his next stop in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So this encounter, and so I think we'll read it, uh, Acts 17:22, 22, um, as he deals with this and realizes, you know, Maybe it was just a realization that he was trying to do this under his own strength and under the power of God that was the true message. Uh, He writes to the Romans, we haven't gotten there yet, but he writes to the Romans that um, the gospel is the power of God that saves men. And in here, Acts chapter 17, he takes this different approach and it probably just kind of made him a little reeling. (laughs) Uh, Acts 17.22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things uh, therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of man, uh, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their, their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they, they might Uh, feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So he's starting to uh, try and appeal to their intellect and reason, but they don't believe by faith. So as it goes back to what it said here, these people are willing to hear and to listen, but they're not going to believe any of it. Um, We have the opportunity of believing the truth of what Christ has done for us, that we can look at what is recorded in Scripture and understand the deeper truths of what's there. God set those boundaries. God has people in certain places. Cultures were there and established to create some of these differences so that when the gospel really encounters them, um, the power of God can be seen even more as righteousness in him is played out in real life. So, uh, For in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. So again, he hasn't really just gone back to the fact that Christ uh, came, died on behalf of your sins, and rose from the dead, but he introduces the resurrection, and at that point, uh, they really kind of scoff. Don? It yeah? really gets me as you, know, you read through it. He doesn't quote scripture. The only thing he quotes is he quotes a pagan poet. Yeah, And I I forget where, who it was, but you can find it out. But one of the commentaries said who it was. So he quotes a pagan poet to support it. No scripture. It's like, how is, oh, is this what you, oh, this is not what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Poets is only source, you know. So, um, so, we, so we see that, and, and of course we know that he has trouble from that. And from there he goes over to Corinth and he says, you know, he's really kind of reeling uh, about that whole thing. So, uh, I like to just go back to the idea that Paul should have stayed with Sermon Number One. Amen, amen. Athens, Athens might have been an entirely different experience, and uh, <laughs> Corinth might have been a different experience. But God used all those things, um, kept him in Corinth for about eighteen months, and he made some headway there uh, with a bunch of people, as Kevin pointed out, for three years that have all kinds of pagan practices um, and all kinds of things that they. Uh, missed, but we get a lot of good uh, theology of the problems that came out of uh, that license uh, to live. So Corinth was a major trade city as people passed through the land rather than sail the more treacherous waters around Cape Malia. So it was kind of a shortcut, um, and it really made more sense that they could get through there. There's um, a little isthmus, I guess, and uh, you, know, you can kind of sail through there. And so it made it a really uh, big trade uh, city, um, there were a lot of Jews that settled there because of the trade opportunities, and you know the merchant of uh, uh, the merchant people and, and the opportunity to capitalize on selling. And, um, it had a bunch of different uh, uh, business things going on. There were sailors, salesmen, bankers, and people from all over the Mediterranean world. It was a boom town, so to speak, and uh, so they saw it, luxury, sensuality, and sport. And uh, those things would uh, uh, certainly come in, into conflict uh, with some other uh, values as they lived for the world. The Temple of Aphrodite was known as a haven for a thousand uh, priestesses who were professional prostitutes. So temple prostitutes were a big thing there um, and uh, opportunities to make money and obviously a lot of sexual license and, and uh, corruption and, and degradation there. Paul was challenged vigorously uh, by the Jews in Corinth and vowed to take his message only to the Gentiles. Um, He remained for at least 18 months and uh, was brought into court on charges by the Jews, having met other tent makers prior to the arrival of Silas and Timothy. Paul remained in Corinth after his charges were dismissed, eventually setting sail for Ephesus with his new friends Priscilla and Aquila. Leaving these new friends in Ephesus, Paul journeyed back to Caesarea and returned to Antioch. And setting out from Antioch, Paul traveled inward to the churches established in Galatia and found his way back to Ephesus. Uh, we don't have all of Ephesus here, so I was going to uh, kind of uh, pause there and uh, pick up the rest of it. But he's moving through this area, establishing churches, doing things, encountering these uh, pagans of all different kinds of cultures And God is moving among them in doing things. When we see the uh, occult practices of Ephesus come to light uh, next week, um, you'll just see that the power of God certainly stands above any powers that people uh, could manifest or believe um, or be superstitious about.